Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is now available for streaming on Spotify. If you're a Spotify person, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify. Also, friendly reminder... This program is offered freely. All episodes are available free of charge. There is an app. That too is free. So the entire catalog, free. More than 500 episodes. It's a listener-supported program. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome right. to the Other People right. Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I have Natalia Sylvester on the program today. She has a new novel out from Little A Books. It is called Everyone Knows You Go Home. Natalia Sylvester is coming up in just a second. I am uh, just back from walking the dog. I just want to file a grievance. I have a couple of grievances, one of which was, uh, you know, I was reading Twitter and it reminded me of this grievance that I have and have long uh, harbored. And then I also, just now as a result of walking my dog, was uh, reminded of another. So the first thing I want to bitch about is this uh, trend that I have noticed lately in Los Angeles, particularly up in the hills on hiking trails where people are wearing like wearable speakers. So instead of wearing earbuds, like a normal civilized human being, have I, have I talked about this before? I always have that sense that I'm repeating myself because I know I've had this conversation and have complained about this before. But people wear, you know, wearable speakers and are blasting their music in these little pockets, these little like sanctuary pockets of nature, which are few and far between in a city like Los Angeles. And it bothers me. It's like people. It's fine to listen to music, but do not impose your music on everyone else. Nobody cares. It feels like a fascist to me or something. It feels violent. That's what it, that's what it feels like. It feels like an act of violence. Like I'm going to forcibly impose 
my uh, cultural preferences upon you. My mood. I'm going to try to express who I am by blaring this music, invading your space while you're trying to have a fucking nature walk. I don't like it. Put some earbuds in. Let people have a moment of peace. I'm not, it's not that I'm getting old. It's not about that. I would not have done this when I was 18 years old. I would have had respect. And you know what? It's not just millennials either. This is not a generational thing. I'm not generationalizing this issue. I see it from people my age or older. Wearable speakers. These people are like personal trainers. There are these like weird, like, because there's lots of cult figures in Los Angeles. Let's be honest. Whether it's like spiritual, you know, like new age, uh, you know, cult figures who are trying to create religions or whatever it is, you know, there's all sorts of these people in Los Angeles. And there, there are also a great many personal trainers and fitness gurus and nutritional experts and so on and so forth who cultivate their little tribes of uh, acolytes customers. And I see them out on the uh, hiking trails a lot. It's like these like super fit dudes running up the trail, followed by like a pack of like wheezing people. <laughs> There's and guys always have these like speakers like dangling from their bodies, just blasting music at like six 30 in the morning. And it's like, you know what? I didn't sign up for your shit enough already with the music. The other thing I want to talk about is the fact that everyone feels like they have a right to my time when I go out with this dog. Now I get it. She's a puppy. It comes with the territory. I totally understand that. But I think there's something to be said for reading a person's body language. When I'm out in public and I'm walking my dog and I'm moving quickly, my head is down. I'm not making eye contact. I'm on my way somewhere. I'm going somewhere. That does not mean that I'm inviting you to come up to me and stop me for 10 minutes. Or these people who have their dog on a leash and I'm walking and it's like, oh, they just want to say hello for 15 minutes. Like while we like dance around one another, detangling our leashes, your dog's like squatting over my dog and like humping it. It's just like, do you not ask permission? Is this, is this not a thing anymore? We just let our dogs maul one another in the, you know, like fucking feral animals. I'm not afraid to complain. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, 
wherever you buy books. But uh, I will tell you this. I had such a nice time talking with Natalia Sylvester. She's one of these people who she shows up at your door. She's just absolutely delightful. Just uh, emanates goodness and kindness. Her husband was with her. He too. Goodness, kindness, just good people. Very nice. Very easy. Enjoyed meeting her. Very pleased to get a chance to share this conversation with you. Her novel, again, is called Everyone Knows You Go Home. It is available now from Little A Books. This is Natalia Sylvester. This was in the 80s, 88, was when we moved to the U.S. And, you know, a lot was going on in Peru at the time with what they call the internal conflict, which was when things like The Shining Path and The Mirta were going on. So there's a lot of... Um, Please inform me what these things are. Yeah, I feel, I feel um, terrible not knowing. group of insurgent groups, terrorism organizations that were constantly... Um, they started out like their movement mostly in the countryside and then slowly moved into the city. And so you would have like bombings all the time. You'd have, um, they would, you know, assassinate like political figures. Basically there was just a state of constant terror and fear in the country, a lot of social uprising. And then of course that led to the, um, hyperinflation, you know, the economy constantly crashing. I mean, they changed the actual, um, currency, I think a couple of times throughout the eighties, by the time we moved to the U S I remember finding a bill in my mom's drawer and it said, it was like millions of soles, you know? And I told her, I was like, we're rich. And she said, <laughs> well, in Peru, you can maybe buy a bottle of soda with that, Wow, you know? And cause that's yeah. the hyperinflation. Yeah, it was, it was the hyperinflation to the point that they came up with the new currency, which was the Nuevo Sol. So soles were really worth nothing. And that's why when she had a bill that was like billions or millions, it was like nothing. Damn. So, and then, um, so we moved in the late eighties, you know, honestly, I've never been able to get a straight answer from my parents on exactly why we moved. And I don't know that there is an exact answer, right? I think it's like the fact that it was a really unsafe time to be in the country. We had family in Miami, so we went and we lived with them, um, your grandfather was kidnapped. Yeah. So that, that was, had to be a factor. Yeah. And they will downplay it. <laughs> well, but why don't you tell listeners, was, tell listeners yeah. about his kidnapping? Cause that's a, that's a major traumatic yeah. event. Yeah. My grandfather was kidnapped for ransom when I was three and he was, um, he was a businessman. He had his own company. And one day he was driving to like, you know, I guess what you would call like the country club in his neighborhood. And he was supposed to meet my dad and he never made it. And so my dad always, he, um, he talks about how he was, called by one of the staff members to go outside and he just saw my grandfather's car with the door still hanging open and it was empty and they'd taken him. Damn. And, um, what did your grandfather do? What was his business? He, so he had a fleet of ships that fueled other ships. That's a good like, thing to have. Yeah. Like cargo and everything. Yeah. And, um, and at the time it was still growing, but by the time, you know, I think grew to like 15 fleets or so, something like that. So was he a wealthy man? He was. Yeah. And, and, and at the time, so in the eighties, he, he had like a nice car and then like back then it was just, that was not to say that was his fault, but it was part of you like to show your wealth, put you in danger. Right. Right. So he, I guess that made him an easy target. And what was he driving? I think he was in a Mercedes from okay. what they say, yeah. from what my parents say. And so he, he was held for two months and my father, basically everyone in my family like left the city. Um, 
except for my sister and my mom and I, because my father was the one who stayed to negotiate with the kidnappers and wait for the phone calls. Who, who were the kidnappers? Like, was it part it of was the just sh- a gang? Yeah, it wasn't part of the Shining Path. A lot of people assume so, but the thing that happened as a result of the terror and the Shining Path and like the bigger organizations, like what's it called, that, the Shining Path? Yeah, Shining Path. It's Sendero Luminoso. There was also another group um, called the Mirta, which is um, the Tupac Amaru Revolutionary Army. And um, but really, the Shining Path was more of the bigger actors. And the Mirta was slightly smaller, and except you know, still very much um, a part of it. And um, the Shining Path sounds so aspirational. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a gang, you know? yeah. <laughs> or I guess maybe the Shining. It sounded creepy, but you know, yeah. Um, like as like as opposed to like the Bloods, you right? Know? I'm, as I hear the Bloods, I'm thinking, okay, Blood, but like the Shining Path, it seems like a path to. Well, yeah, they had Maoist um, aspirations for oh, the government. Okay, that makes and more so, sense. Yeah, and so and they'd been around like. I know, I forget who was it that told me that he went, they went to school with like the main leader. And so it's something that had been going on like slowly over the years, right? Mm. Um, in the universities and then it grew into like, you know, that's what you indoctrinate your, your, you gather your groups that way. And so in the eighties was really when it kind of reached that boiling point. And did, uh, okay. So your dad, uh, is, or your dad is negotiating with these kidnappers they always say you're not supposed to negotiate, but I guess what are you mm-hmm. going to do? They've got your grandfather. Yeah. They've got your father. Um, yeah. Did he pay him off? So they thought that my grandfather was far wealthier than they than he was. They were asking, I think, for a million dollars in U.S. dollars. And uh, my family was like, we don't have that kind of money. Um, and so it, took, so it took two months. And they finally, I think, negotiated down to like 50 grand or something. And um, from what my father tells me he was ready. He had the bag in hand that day. He was going to go to whatever meeting point they had. And then the cops found like a window in, like they saw an opportunity and they actually raided the place where he was being kept and they they were able to rescue him. Yeah. Which is not common at all because most of the time, actually you wouldn't even want to involve the cops because a lot of times there's people within the, um, you know, within law enforcement that are corrupt and they're also, they're actually working against you. Um, and so, from some, for some luck. And actually that's the other thing. It's one of those family histories that I, the details are still kind of fuzzy for me because again, I was three. I only learned about it when I was 12 in this very nonchalant way. Like we had gone to Peru to visit family and I noticed that there was this man who was always following my grandfather around. And when I asked my sister, she was like, well, that's his bodyguard. Oh my God. And I was like, why does Abuelito need a bodyguard? And, yeah. and then, so then she explained it to me, but like she knew and I didn't, and nobody in my family had been actively trying to keep it a secret. It was just that either a, they assumed I knew or it was no longer like talked about too much. Well, and it's also, I mean, I can speak as a parent. You just want to, you know, yeah. you don't want your kids to think that this is a possibility. Like, Oh, somebody could kidnap one of you. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have to have that conversation. Not because you want to be dishonest necessarily, but because you want to protect. Yeah. Um, I can relate to that. You know, it's hard because I think, uh, on principle, I like the idea of being honest as a dad. Um, not brutally honest. I was just thinking about this the Mm -hmm. other day. You know how sometimes people speak of brutal honesty as if it's like this big virtue, like, Hey, I'm just a brutally honest person. And then that actually means you're just sort of a dick. Yeah. Cause it can be cruel. Like brutality. (laughs) I don't like that when people are, I'm brutally honest. It's like, well, that's I think I would rethink that. How about, you know, you can be gently honest right uh, yeah. and and tailor your remarks to your audience so like you know when i'm talking to my daughter if she has like tough questions for me i want to answer those questions honestly mm. 
But there are times where I'm like, you know what? Let's put a pin in this one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's revisit this when you're like 15. Right. You know, because she's already getting, you know, she's a smart kid. She's already got, gotten out of, like out ahead of herself. And I'm like, don't just enjoy. Mm. Life's going to be tough enough, you know, enjoy these halcyon days of innocence. You know? Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So your, uh, family, the, your grandfather stayed in Peru. He did. Uh, well, for a little bit, he went, we went to Costa Rica for a few months after that. Just and, to chill out. Just like be like, you know yeah. what? Let's unwind a little bit. Right. And, and then we moved to the U S and what I didn't know until years later, again, cause this is the way memory works, right? I always thought that my grandfather had visited us while we were living in Costa Rica. And my mom was like, no, actually he moved to Costa Rica and that's why we went. Oh, um, and that because he wanted to get away. Um, but then ultimately he realized he didn't want to leave Peru. And so he went back and we had a chance to go to the U S and be with my aunt and my uncle and my cousins and, um, over, over there. So we went to Miami that's where we first started living. And so it was a big leap. Like we're moving to the States. Yeah. yeah. We're going to make a go of this. Yeah. And did you have like a path to citizenship? You know, like, I mean, to coin, to use a, a common mm-hmm. phrase, like when you went there, did you, did, were you like, a, how we're going to immigrate? Like, how does the process work? Yeah. I mean, we did and we, and, it, and yet it changed a lot because, um, I think the original plan had been, my father was a doctor. Well, he is a doctor in, in Lima and, um, what kind of doctor? a pediatrician. Okay. And so the plan had been, I think if I remember it correctly, again, it's, I feel so weird sometimes answering questions about my childhood because I only know what my parents told me. And some of the details can be a little, um, just spare. They're very sometimes a little sparing with them. But from what I understand, the plan had been that since my uncle in Miami is a neurosurgeon, um, my dad was going to then become like an assistant to him, like the doctor's assistant, because to get recertified is really difficult. Um, and he was jogging around one day and saw like, you know, the Kaplan testing centers. Yeah. And he just, he decided he came home and he told my mom, I want to try to get recertified and he didn't speak English. And so he had to learn English and then he had to take all the exams over again. He did his residency in Miami children's hospital and, um, and then he decided to do a fellowship. And so we moved to Gainesville, te- uh, Gainesville, Florida. And, you know, in all that time, my mom had, was working at my uncle's office as, uh, like in the administrative side, medical assistant. And so, you know, we had, a, we had a very solid support system right. that I think a lot of people don't like, I don't take that for granted ever. It's not, it's not, it's never easy to immigrate, but I think for us, at least we had this like, yeah, it's not the popular, like uh, popular in quotes. It's not the popular version of the story. Right. Usually the immigrant experience is a lot rockier. It is. And it wasn't, and certainly in a lot of other ways it was for us that in a lot of ways that I think my mom tried to make sure I didn't see, and yet I did. But you know, the first few months we lived in the U S we lived in my, my aunt and uncle's house and everything was very fascinating. And we lived with my cousins I remember my cousin, like the first day I got to the U S she told me, um, she's like, here, there's giant bumblebees that if you're nice to them, they'll let you ride around on their backs and fly across the sky. And so it just felt (laughs) very like, no, I know. Right. (laughs) But it just, to me, it was just this very exciting new place to be. And, um, and it's, it's weird in the sense that I don't have a lot of memories actually of Peru at all. I have one memory of Peru, which I didn't realize was a memory of Peru until recently. 
But I always think that my memories actually started that day that we got here, hmm. um, which well, is so strange how that works. Well, it was big. It was it a big was. moment. Yeah. But it, also it's a function of age. Like I don't remember right. anything from before I was four years right. old, you know, like I barely remember anything. But, yeah. Um, it's hard to, I mean, I like there, there, there's always these people who are like, I remember the moment I was born or <laughs> I remember being a baby and nursing. It's like, what? Like, yeah. I don't believe that. No, I don't. I don't. I do have one memory of like, um, and I thought it was in Costa Rica and it was of there being a blackout in the house and us having to light candles. And I told my mom this recently, maybe four or five years ago. And she like, her face just like went, she just got really sad. And she said, that wasn't in Costa Rica. That was in Lima. And I was, I said, oh, and she goes, that was the blackouts. That's when they would attack the power grid. Um, you know, when the shining path would attack the power grid to just kind of remind people like we're here, you know, and that's how they would terrorize the city all at once. And so you would have random blackouts. Sounds like what's coming from Russia. I know. They hacked into our power grids. They're going to shut us down. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, not I know. Kidding. No, trust me. I do like the nervous <laughs> laugh thing. Cause I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know. It's, it was like a weird realization to think like I had this one memory that I always thought I never had memories of Peru. And, and the one memory that I did have that I thought was of somewhere else was a supposedly a happy one. And then to realize it wasn't actually, yeah, it was just well, the product of the terror on the, uh, I, I know and this is weird, but it was like the night of the Oscars. Cause my wife was gone. She was like out watching it with her friends. And then, uh, our power went out. Mm. So I was home alone with the kids. My son was asleep already. I was just about to tuck my daughter in and uh she uh, and like boom that like everything went out and what was weird is that the neighbors over here fine neighbors across the street fine it was just us and then to the end of the block this way hmm. some weird little yeah you know thing that you know had something to do with the wiring and uh she was thoroughly freaked out yeah like we were fine we had our flashlights and we were doing shadow puppets and it was like i mm -hmm. made, tried to make it fun right yeah but she was freaked yeah. you know and, and i was also like wow this is weird like imagine if this were citywide and prolonged like when you don't have power yeah um you know it impacts just about everything it is and there's something creepy about it like, well it's deeply psychological you're like literally in the dark and you're so vulnerable there yeah so well something to look forward to <laughs> <laughs> we'll learn a lot about ourselves in the next mm -hmm. nationwide blackout mm. um so okay so you're in miami your family is adjusting um to life in the states like your dad's pretty that's pretty remarkable. I have so much respect for people who are like, you know what? I'm going to learn English. And mm. I mean that like that alone, just yeah. like coming in and like mastering the language, but to do that and also say, and I'm going to get recertified as a pediatrician, uh, because, you know, I think the onus is on you to be pretty super fluent in a medical context, right. especially like you can't make a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's trying to communicate with you about what's ailing them and you don't understand, or you miscommunicate something um, about a crucial health situation, you know, the consequences can be large. So, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's doing that. And then like, w at what point did you, did you guys start to get into a feeling of like normalcy? Like, this is it, this is home. How long did it mm -hmm. take? Honestly, for me, it was probably pretty quick because my family was there. And so you very easily settle into this routine of like summers in the, at the beach and, you know, we'd go to my cousin's house, they had a pool. And so, um, it was just little things like that. It, like for me, I, like I had no job other than to be a kid and have fun. Yeah. You were so, young. It's easy for kids. Right. Especially that young. Yeah. And my mom, especially, I think, um, she was so proactive, like looking back, she was so proactive about making sure we had that. 
And so she was, and I'd say it often because I know a lot of people are very impressed with my father's accomplishments as they should be. But then the role of of my mom, I think, was a little less visible Mm. in that she was always the one like at home and she worked part time too. So, but um, she worked part time. She would leave in time to always wait for us at the bus station. And I'll never forget, like, she would still be there, like, rain, shine, anything. She was always at the bus station waiting for us to get home from school. Um, you know, and then so meanwhile, she was the one taking care of everything having to do with our immigration status, all the paperwork, all the anxiety of it. Like, the way the way it weighed on her never actually escaped me. Yeah. Um, and I remember um, asking her one day what alien meant because I saw it. Like, I, you know, once I started to learn to read and stuff and she told me that it was it meant us because we're not from here and we're considered alien here and it is just one of those moments where like you know kind of talking about that honesty again i don't think in her case it was like a brutal honesty it was just i'm going to have to eventually tell you this you know like the way better that you hear it from me yeah be prepared so, i mean you know i think that's maybe protecting your child yeah. a bit because you know somebody tells you about it on the playground it's probably going to have a, a greater impact right you know negatively yeah absolutely um, so yeah. well yeah you know it, it's i think i was thinking of my wife when you were talking about uh your mom and like all the little things that i feel like moms often do mm-hmm. uh to keep things together taking care of the kids getting things you know, to and from school a lot of the social activities my son's got health issues she's taking him to all these appointments yeah she's sort of the hero she, yeah, they, I mean, my mom really is like, I had health issues as a kid. I was, um, in and out of surgeries for my hip. Uh, every, what was wrong with it? I was born with hip dysplasia. So the joint is kind of not fully in the I socket. I didn't know people could have that. Yeah. I mean, and it, like, I don't mean this in a, a, to make fun, but like, no. I, I've always heard about it in the context of dogs. Like, I know. I like, know. I see that too. That maybe that's why I love dogs so much. <laughs> I look at them. I'm like, you and I, right now, we have the same things. Um, no, I, yeah. And, and the thing, the reason you don't hear about it often is that in humans, it's, it's pretty easily solvable if you catch it early on. Um, but I guess in my case, something happened. I don't, that's the other thing, a part of it that's not entirely clear, but it just didn't catch like whatever treatment I had. So I had to be in and out of surgeries. Like I had several before I was like one. And then when we moved to the U S like I had one in first grade and then another second because what they were doing is they're putting like a screw in the joint and then they had to remove it two years later so it ended up being this very um back and forth of surgeries um, i mean it's good that your dad's a pediatrician yeah he probably diagnosed it early right you know i don't know i'm sure he did yeah um but it wasn't his specialty either so you know I, i remember going to see like the orthopedic surgeon in miami the first time and my mom had given me this silver yama to give to him as a gift and i didn't speak english yet so the whole ride over and she she spoke a little bit you know and she goes she told me when you see him say this is for you dr king and i was just rehearsing it over and over again because i think especially in like in peru where we came from there's this elevation of the doctor and like this role of like oh el doctor you know and so yeah. we were very nervous about meeting him and, I was and gonna, it felt I was very say, important br- it's actually brilliant to br- if you're gonna have surgery bring, bring <laughs> yeah. the surgeon a present i know right? hey do a like, good I job okay wink, here's wink. some here's some chocolate <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but that's, yeah that's what, what did you bring him it was a yama it was like a little sculpture about three four inches high and it okay. was made of silver and it was yeah it was in the shape of a yama it's very what, what's like, a yama 
Oh, a llama. Sorry. Oh, a llama. Sorry. I'm yeah. just, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I like, refuse to not see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and you know, I mean, if you go to Peru, there, you see them everywhere. You'll see them in the Like little, alpacas or uh-huh. whatever? Yeah. Is, is an alpaca a llama? They're like cousins. They're cousins. Yeah. Because yeah, they look yeah. similar. They do. I just, I, I can never remember the exact differences, to be honest. It's like saying alligators and crocodiles, although probably not the same, but I can't remember exactly the differences. Like the same genus or yeah. something. You know? Yeah. Soft furs, both of them. Yeah. Like, I, I remember like friends of mine would go like, uh, you know, down to South America backpacking or whatever, especially like right out of college and everyone would always come back with like alpaca. Yeah. You know, fur, like whatever, sweaters. It's very nice, soft cotton. Okay. Yeah. So you, uh, you get surgery. Yeah. By the way, I, you know, I keep projecting my own parental experience on what you're saying, but like taking a one-year-old in for a surgical procedure is terrifying for a parent, like any kind of anesthesia. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah. I don't, I mean, obviously that I don't remember, but I do have like pictures of, um, that my parents, there's actually what, like this photo album where there's a, and I remember taking it. There's this picture right before I went into one of my first surgeries that I do remember. So I was probably like six and, um, I was in this really nice outfit. It was really early in the morning. I can remember being very excited about it because when you're a kid, you don't know. And so I was like, I'm having an operation and I would tell everyone this, like, <laughs> right. cause I guess maybe my parents made me excited. I don't know actually where I got that idea that it was exciting, but in the picture, I'm just smiling. Like I'm about to go to a theme park or something. Yeah. And looking back, I see the look on my mom's face and it was just like, you could see Intensity. the horror of yeah, it. She's in, it's intense. It is. And it was just, and it was kind of a regular thing for several years for me. And, and when I look back, like recently my mom, because I, you know, she had moved out of our house in Miami. So she had all these, this old paperwork and files. And she was like, do you want these? This is some of your old school work. This is, these are your medical records. You mean this was like recently? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the, it was the first time I had all my medical, medical records in one place. And I started looking through them and it, I guess kind of going back to what you're saying about your wife, always being the one who takes care of the health issues, because in those records, I see how much like the doctor's notes are always like, um, the patient and her mom, her mom said that they did this. Her mom brought her here and her mom's been noticing that she has pain here. And, and it's just all like that invisible labor that nobody really saw. And then I like, and I saw it, but I couldn't like quite place it. Right. You know? And I, I ended up spending so much time growing up with my mom, probably more than most people do because while I was recovering from surgery, I was in a cast usually from like my chest to my ankles. And so I would stay home, you know, and I'd be homeschooled. Like they would send, um, a teacher from, I guess, I don't know what the program is, but when there's like a program for kids who are being homeschooled for medical reasons. So it's like temporary and that teacher would coordinate with my teachers. And so they would bring me assignments. Oh, wow. and it was like two or three days a week or something. Yeah, yeah. And so she would come to the house and my mom would always have like coffee and treats for them. And Mamas. Yeah, exactly. We just hand them out like candy. <laughs> Here, you need a llama. Here's a llama. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was lovely. Like, I don't think that many kids get to spend that time with that much time with them. And I, I, I would go to work a lot of times with my mom. And, um, you had I a good mom. Yeah, I did. I really did. She's still with us. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I dedicated my book to her. And I think that's also, I like, I just, she's like, um, I just keep thinking about her lately these days and kind of reflecting on all the things that I, I mean, how do you ever really thank your parents? Right. You, know, you can't like, do you have kids? No, you don't. Mm-mm. Wait till you have a kid. I mean, if, if you have yeah. a kid, but, uh, I mean, yeah, you don't have to have kids to be able to appreciate your parents. But I think once you have children, 
and you just come to learn like all that goes into it hmm. and just like it just it, there's no off switch hmm. like yeah. you're in it it's permanent yeah. and like not just like when they turn 18 and go away to college or whatever it's still there oh like, absolutely it, like it's a permanent thing it never ends like my parents uh even i'm 42 years old they're still like that's my son how's he doing is he hmm. you know like you're still thinking about them uh like they're your babies it never never ends and it's a great thing but it is uh it's it can be consuming yeah i guess it should be yeah that's the deal when you go into it. Um, so in your relationship with your dad, I mean, was he work, working all the time? Was it one of those things where he was gone most of the time trying to make all this stuff happen professionally? I mean, he was like gone more, you know, yeah, he was gone a lot, but he would come home at night. Like he had pretty normal. Well, actually, to be honest, no, because <laughs> when residency, you're there, you're taking like two day shifts, 48 hour shifts. So there are periods where we wouldn't see him for a while. Right. But, um, but I wouldn't say he was like absent. I think it was just a matter of us knowing like, well, yeah, he's working. Yeah. My, like my dad went to uh, Harvard to get like a, an advanced business degree. Mm -hmm. When I was like in elementary school, he was gone for months. Oh, well, like yeah. he, he had to go to Boston. Yeah. You know, but it was like an opportunity he couldn't pass up. His company was wanted him to do it. Uh, you know, my mom was like, yeah, go do it. It'll, you know, lead to good things. And it did. And like, uh, I think back on that and then, you know, he was just traveling a lot. Um, I talk about my wife doing all that kind of stuff. You know, your mom doing all this stuff medically. Like, you have to divide and conquer. Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's a choice. Like if there was a choice, I'd be like at home all the time, just playing with my kids. But like, you got to go make a living. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm, you know, I'm possibly going to take a job on the west side of Los Angeles, which like the mm -hmm. commute is like an hour there, oh, wow. an hour back. So I'm like, oh man, if I take that, probably not going to see my children all that much. Mm. But what am I supposed to do? It's hard. I know. Yeah. Because I mean... I'll Skype with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least there's that option now, right? FaceTime. Just yeah. FaceTime with me. Yeah. We'll create some memories. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you grow up in Miami. You grew up in Gainesville. Mm. And didn't you grow up in Texas too? Yeah. Then, so we moved to, from Gainesville, we moved to McAllen, Texas. Well, actually we moved to Mission, Texas. I, Where is that? It's in the Valley. Um, so the Southern part of Texas and it's like, we were living maybe the, the town I lived in was maybe three or five miles from the border. Oh, wow. So, um, and it was just such a, I was 10, 11 and 12 while, when I lived in the Valley. And so it just left like this really huge impact on me. And I, I remember when we left, I didn't want to leave. Like I cried the entire time because I think it was the first time I had like a sense of, whereas Miami was the home was home because my family was there. Right. Um, in McAllen, I found a way to feel at home because of the friends I made and because of, you know, the school I was in and just, and just in the way of you, be, you build a relationship with the place, yeah. not just the people there, even though the people there were obviously really important too. Um, Why did you move there in the first place? So from what I understand, it was because of a certain visa, like my father, um, I forget the name of it, but it's the, you know, where, the, where you have, if, if you um, work for a couple of years in like a more underserved part of the country, then 
it, that helps you get a different kind of visa. Uh, right. So like really every time we moved, it had something to do with trying just to navigate the visa system, the visa system and go be a pediatrician can, in a place where there's you right. know, a shortage. Yeah, exactly. And so it was just, and my mom was always the one navigating that. Like it was kind of like, okay, so this one's not going to work. So what else can we do? And, um, and she, like I said, always made that very, um, I mean, looking back, I didn't realize at one point she told me, she was like, at one point I thought we were just going to have to move back to Peru, you know, and we were packed and ready to go because, because it's hard to navigate. There's not, and like, we didn't have anyone guiding us through it. Um, it's, it's so difficult. Like you could like fill out one thing wrong on a form and it all goes to shit. Like, oh, can I say that? Yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, um, and so it just, she was constantly like quietly struggling with that. And I would see it. I would see it in just the way she would go check the mail or in the way she would just always be working on these things and always wondering like, well, what can we do next? And what can we, how can we find a way to stay? And did you have a vantage in McAllen when you were living in Texas, um, to the immigrant experience, like the Mexico to the States? Right. You know what I'm saying? Since you were yeah. kind of a border town. Oh, and it definitely, it and very much is a border town and it's predominantly, um, Latino and, um, I mean, it was, it's funny because when you're at that age though, like you're not aware of those things. Oh. And it was only when I went back as an adult that I saw like the border patrol has a tremendous presence there. Um, by the way, this shit with ice yeah. lately oh, yeah. is getting so dark and, yeah. uh, destructive and cruel. Yeah. Like the news today is that they're now detaining pregnant women. Yeah. I'm like, really? You know? And like women who are detained have a much higher chance of miscarrying. Mm. I mean, like yeah. this is all just obvious humane, you know, humanity right. stuff. Like how in the world can we be doing this to I people? Know. It's a, uh, I don't know that like that storyline, there are a million storylines uh, of the current moment that, that uh, bother me, but that in particular bothers me. Yeah. It uh, seems there's no depth to which they won't go. Um, and like their narrative for a while was just, Oh, we're only like looking for, you know, looking to deport criminals, bad and, actors, right? There's, that's a bunch of bullshit. It is. It's absolutely. And when you're chasing, when you're, um, you know, when you're detaining a young girl who's trying to get surgery and detaining her parents and following them, like following the ambulance to the hospital and waiting for her to get out of surgery to then deport her parents. You yeah. know, that's the yeah, kind of split, stuff they've done. Splitting up families, yeah. like seven-year-old kids it's don't horrible. know where their mom, you know, yeah. uh, I could go on and on, but, yeah. um, you know, your book talks about the immigrant experience, um, and you obviously lived it. Uh, and I'm imagining that you're sort of channeling all of it, not only your own personal life, right. but the lives of people you've met and the neighbors and friends that you had in Texas and oh, absolutely. people you knew in Miami. Cause Miami is obviously a huge yeah. hub of, uh, it, you know, immigration, yeah. especially from Latin America. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is the world that you lived in. Um, it is. And that's, I think that's part of like, so, you know, I started writing this book in 2013. Uh, and so there, it is happening to come out now. Um, but it's always been something that a, I was living, observing and like ob living in, observing, um, really very often heartbroken by the way it's depicted. Um, because it, it just, it lacks, like you mentioned, it lacks humanity, it lacks compassion. There's so many misconceptions depicted in fiction. Um, no, I'm just saying in like the national conversation. Oh, and this right. was even before 
before our current administration. You know, even though now it's at this completely extreme point, but the the seeds are always there. And so, I mean, if you ask any any immigrant, we're not really surprised um, to see any of this, you know, happen. Right. Um, so, I just. You know, I did. I like that you hear all these stories growing up. You see them in friends, families, neighbors, just people in your community. And especially, for example, Miami, people have come from all over the world. Um, and in when I lived in McAllen, it was mostly um, the Mexican population. And so you see all the ways that, yes, our experiences are very different in a lot of ways, but in so many ways, they're very similar. And I, I guess for me, I was just trying to explore the ways that they're similar in terms of what it means once you're here as like a Latinx person in the U S trying to make a home here. Um, cause like even growing up and hearing my mom constantly talk about feeling caught in between and not really quite feeling like you fit in anywhere. Um, I felt that too. And just in a very different way, but I, I did, I felt it in just the ways people are constantly, you know, asking like, okay, so wait, but where are you really from? You know, or even just in Gainesville, I remember being one of two people in my entire class that spoke Spanish. And, um, and, and so in Is Gainesville, a, pretty white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's central Florida. And it was, um, you know, my teacher one day had this exercise she did in which she pulled out a map and she was like, we're going to put a pin on where everyone was born. And so we went around the class and everyone was, you know, pretty much born like Florida, Georgia, all kind of around there. And when she got to me, I said, Lima, Peru. And she like froze because she had only pulled out a map of the United States. And of course there was no place for me there. And so she was like, Oh, we're going to just put a pin here along the border <laughs> and we'll write it. And like, I mean, how much, how can you're literally marginalizing me right? <laughs> you know? in front of the whole class? Yeah, Thanks. exactly. And so it's just, um, I wanted to talk a lot about the, those experiences, but I think that for me, what I felt was missing is just in, in those conversations is that people forget that we're just normal people, right? And we're just wanting the most basic things, which is just safety for your family that, that's and to love and protect them. This is, this, is, this is part of what frustrates me so much about this. Like, like there are plenty of debates, I think, in this country that are complex, uh, and you know, are deserving of an extended conversation. Mm. Then there are other debates that just seem simple to me. Yeah. Like gun safety, gun laws like this. Okay. We know how to fix this. Yeah. We know what works. We have evidence all over the world of, you know, so why don't we just do these things? Uh, with regard to immigration, this notion that it's all these bad actors who are flooding the border to commit crimes in America. Like, do people even have any idea what it takes to get across yeah. the border? Like the physical hardship, mm. the danger, the, um, you know, the, the extremely difficult, uh, experiences that one has once one gets across the border most yeah. of the time. Uh, these are people who are fleeing, uh, poverty or difficult situations, yeah. you know, difficult uh, political unrest, whatever the case may be to have a better life. Yeah. Why, like, why is it so hard for people to see this? These are just people who are trying to, improve their lives. They're in trouble yeah. in some sense, you know, and, uh, people don't see it that way. There's just a lot of fear. And I think there's a lot of economic anxiety at the heart of it too. And yet, so that's interesting to me too, because then people who will well intentionally try to defend, uh, 
immigrants by saying things like, well, you know, immigrants contribute this much to the economy. And, and then people will try to refute that myth of like, well, undocumented immigrants are just, um, you know, what, what is it they say that like, they're kind of like just mooching off the system and stuff. And, but, and, and yet actually undocumented immigrants contribute billions of dollars to, to, in taxes to the, to the country. And we would be like, um, in really grave trouble if, 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 if that wasn't happening. Um, I think it's such a cruel way of trying to quantify the importance of a life by having to say, well, this is how much they're contributing in taxes. Right. Or then, or even saying, well, look at all these exceptional things that immigrants have done. Right. And I know that's coming from a place that is like well-meaning, but to me, I think, think of it as like, how can we have to be exceptional to be just seen as human right. when there's plenty of people who are living perfectly normal, ordinary, normal, I hate that word, but you know, just very ordinary and even mediocre lives. And that's fine. Decent. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's a better I'm word. I'm leading a mediocre life. <laughs> I don't, you know what I meant. <laughs> I'm a study in mediocrity. Yeah. We have yeah. something in common. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have used that word, but you know what I mean? Just like, just, it doesn't have to be this exceptional experience right. in order for it to be valid and well, human. That, and how can we have to constantly prove ourselves worthy of just wanting this very ordinary thing as safety and a roof over your head? Right. And, well, but you hear that a lot of times in the context of, um, achievement by minority populations, yeah. whatever they may be that like in order to succeed, you have to be exceptional. You have to be yeah. twice as good as your Caucasian counterpart, you have to, um, I don't know, work twice as hard to get noticed, to get paid in an equitable way, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I I think like, um, I can think president Obama, I want to say it was Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. I, I always, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But he said basically like he walked across ice for eight years and never slipped. Yeah. And it's like, that may, that really hit home with me. Cause it's like, man, we look at what's happening now, right? like even one sliver of one of yeah. one single infraction that Donald Trump has made. Exactly. Would have, there would have been impeachment proceedings unfolding like that. Yeah. And they were ready, but Obama never slipped. Yeah. Not in a way that, you know, no arrests, no scandals. And now we have this mm. and, uh, you know, it's definitely a different set of standards. Oh, absolutely. And like just like outrageous hypocrisy. Yeah. How far they'll go to just protect him and try to say, no, no, he's still good. He's still good. Yeah. Just, the evangelical community suddenly yeah. like embracing Trump. I mean, just, it's so upside down. Yeah. Um, and it just, it reveals a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of, uh, confusions hmm. to put it like diplomatically. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you, I think like the fact that you were, um, somewhat sickly, or at least like you were bedridden for extended periods of time mm-hmm. being in like a body cast, right. it's going to limit you as a child in terms of what you can do. Um, you know, was that something that you feel factored into your love of story and your, um, love of books and reading? Like, was that beginning then I, or no? I'm pretty sure it probably was only because that's around the time I was learning to read. And, um, and I had a really hard time learning to read because I'd only just learned to speak, to speak English. Right. 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 And, um, and so, you know, you go from kindergarten when you're just learning to speak English to the next grade. These days, kids learn to read so much sooner. I learned to read in first grade. <laughs> no, but you know what? Oh. Yeah. Yes. And no, like my daughter, I guess she was piecing some stuff together, but yeah, kindergarten, first yeah. grade. That's okay. I mean, okay. I, unless like, they, you know, unless you're like a tiger mom or something. I don't know. 
my nieces are in daycare and they've started their ABCs and reading and they're not even in kindergarten yet. But anyways, I digress. But no, I, yeah, I started in first grade and it was hard for me to do just because you're still barely catching a language and now you're trying to read in it. And, uh, and so I think a part of it was that when I find, when it finally clicked for me, it felt very like eye opening and like this whole world was like, Oh my God, like open to me. Now I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of it, it was actually that when I would be home and, um, after my surgery, I I would go, some days I would go to work with my mom and she had this typewriter in her office and I would just play with it and I would write limericks on it. Limericks. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was reading Matilda, which was one of the first books I ever loved. And, um, my daughter read that. It's such a great book. (laughs) I love it so much. I mean, even just looking back, it still holds up like this little girl and it's almost like her superpower is just her brain. Um, and she just, she, the first day she goes to school, she learns about limericks. And so I just copied the, like not copied, but I was like, Oh, so that's what a limerick is. And I'm going to try to write some. So I would spend all day in my mom's office, like in my, and I had a, by then I think they'd removed the cast. So I was in a walker and crutches and stuff. And I would just be writing limericks all day. And I kind of like, they would joke at the office that I became like, because eventually I was there so often. I was always there for the office parties with cake. It was always somebody's birthday. And I was always like making banners for whoever's birthday it was on like those, um, you know, those printers in the nineties. Like that, the dot matrix. That's the dot matrix. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. I would be like coloring them in with crayon and I was kind of like their unofficial mascot at the office. Yeah. That's nice the, to have around. Yeah. Cute kid. Yeah, writing limericks. Like writing limericks and coloring in <laughs> dot matrix banners. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think that's kind of where it started. Um, and then eventually, you know, when I got older and or even just, I remember when I was nine, my mom bought me a journal. I was going to say, you journaling yeah. and writing poetry in high school? Yeah. Good. Oh, so much. You still so have it? High school po- I have every journal. Yes. Except for one that I lost and I'm, I still am like wondering who took my journal from that one I year threw, I threw all mine away. Grade. Really? Yeah. Because I, re- I, I made the mistake of reading them and I was like, no one can ever see this. Like, this is embarrassing. That's true. I have read them recently and they're pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, but there's like, still plenty to incriminate me. I mean, I have yeah. like huge amounts of uh, Word documents and stuff that <laughs> my children never read them. They'll be like, whoa, <laughs> I might want to have to disavow this relationship. Um, so you get to high school. Where did you go to high school? Back in Miami. In, back in Miami. Yeah. So you moved back. By the, by then we were in Miami because we moved from Texas back to Miami in the middle of seventh grade. Okay. Um, so I was 12 and that was brutal for me because so in Texas, I, my favorite outfit to wear was like this t-shirt with like this big butterfly on the front. And it was like this, you know, like it was, it was, I was one of the cool kids. Right. I had that same t-shirt. Yeah. It's upstairs. But I wore it the first day to my school in Miami thinking like, yeah. And I just will never forget. Like this is seventh grade and everyone was in these little crop tops and tight jeans and like just, you know, miles ahead of me in terms of development and just maturity and everything, you know, and it was just really shocking to go from one culture to another. Did they tease you? Uh, I don't, they didn't tease me so much as kind of just ignore me. Oh, okay. And, and then I had like one friend who then did say hi and she's my best friend even to this day. And so I found my group. It pays to say hi. Right. If you you want friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're in the market. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I mean, 
so I was just, I kind of became one of those kids that just floats somewhere in the middle in the background. And, and that was fine. You're inoffensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're just talking about the butterfly t-shirt and it was reminding me, uh, I think I've told this story before, but, uh, my first day of sixth grade, moving to a new state, moving to a new school. I, uh, I guess I like wanted to make a splash because mm. like at that age, you're yeah. like, uh, you get, you get like your first day of school outfit. My mom took me to the store and for some reason I was like, I want to get suspenders and I want to wear this. And I had like oh a blue God. shirt, yellow suspenders. I'm not kidding. Khaki pants. Like, but I think they were cargo pants. And then I was really into soccer, which wasn't big at oh, like the no. school that I moved to. Like yeah. soccer was sort of like not a thing, you know, but yeah. I was like, I came from Milwaukee and like, it was this huge, it was the, the sport. So it was like a blue shirt, yellow suspenders, khaki cargo pants and, and soccer shoes. And, uh, I showed up and it was just, it was just a, uh, disaster. It is. It's so hard. Yeah. People were like, what, what, what's oh, your problem? No. <laughs> Snapping my suspenders. That's so cute though. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. Moving is it tough. Is. Moving yeah. is hard. It is. It gets harder, especially at that age, you know, adolescence, yeah. the dawn of adolescence and, you know social stuff and friends it's so important and kids can be mean they can be really mean and it, i mean for, for me i i mostly was when they were mean to me it wasn't so much with the moving it was really more just my hip issues and things people are just mean when you like when your body is not the same as theirs right um were you still dealing with this back when high school like the, the hip? Um, my last surgery was before ninth grade so it, it mm. kind of ended it like it was a summer before ninth grade so at least i got to leave that part of me behind before high school right but it doesn't you know like so because of it i have like one leg is slightly longer than the other and right. so occasionally i'll limp and you know kids aren't nice about those things right. um, they don't understand it and i think even adults sometimes don't like very well-meaning comments and it'll be like, Oh, why are you walking like that? Are you yeah. hurt? And it's like, no, this is how my body works. My and son, my son has cerebral palsy. And I think about yeah. how he's going to walk and like, you know, cause he's going to walk eventually. He's, he's almost three and he's not walking yet, but, um, we'll see what medical science does, but I just hope people have evolved a little bit yeah. more by now. Cause it's like, uh, I feel very protective. Yeah. If, if kids, if kids come after him, like, I wonder what I'll do. I know. <laughs> and like, I, I want to make sure I model, uh, sane behavior and, uh, you know, I want to teach him well how to cope with people not being so nice. Cause it's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen to everybody Absolutely, in life. Yeah. But, uh, as a parent, man, I worry that like, I might do something that would put me in jail. <laughs> right. It's hard. Yeah. Um, we'll see. But it's like, you know, I feel very protective of him. I imagine your Understandably. parents. Yeah, mine, mine too. And I, I think that's, but I wouldn't tell them too often. It, it like, I I remember it affecting me sometimes really hard and then other times it would kind of roll off. And so it was very fluid and just depended on the context and how it happened. Yeah. I mean, at that age too, you're like, you sort of like not maybe communicating with your parents about every little yeah. thing. Right. And so you internalize a lot of that. Yeah. It's just like what happens at school. Exactly. Even, even now I'm like, I'm, to my daughter, I'm like, how was school? Fine. What happened? I don't know. Yeah. Like she doesn't even want to tell me. Right. And every once in a while, like, you know, she'll, she'll spill, spill the beans, but it usually happens with my wife. Yeah. She, or she you gets have to kind of pry stuff. it out of them. Yeah. You have to, yeah. You yeah. have to interrogate a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so where did you go to college? So I went to the university of Miami. Oh, you did. Okay. That's right. I did go to, so actually first I went to the university of Florida for like a semester and I didn't like it. And then I went home. 
to Miami. And I think, I think a part of it was that because we'd spent so much of our lives moving around, um, that, that I made a choice to leave home for college thinking that I would want that. And it turned out I wasn't ready. And so I went back to Miami and I went to, to the university of Miami. That's a good school. It was, it was a great school. Yeah. Yeah. And Miami's kind of better than Gainesville, right? It offers more. I liked more. it more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing against Gainesville. No. Home of Tom Petty. Yeah, exactly. That was the big claim to fame. That's yeah. Mean, yeah. When yeah. I lived there when I was little, I was like, I was totally into him. I was nine years old. And... Tom Petty? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like Singing Tom. I have, I have a huge, I'm from Indiana, especially. Like the Tom Petty, was like, you know, he was, uh, he was one of the kings of rock and roll. That there's a lot of connection to him for some reason. Yeah. Like culturally or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but there was like a big embrace. So he was a big part of my childhood. Yeah. Um, and I was just watching last night, this Gary Shandling documentary. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about it? I haven't. On no. HBO. It's like this four hour thing about Gary Shandling and it's by Judd Apatow. And, uh, I don't know. I just started watching it. I got hooked into it. Um, and there's, there are scenes where Gary Shandling is talking to Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. They're hanging out and like, you know, just, it, it's actually really funny. But I was like, God, man, I can't believe he's dead. I can't I believe Prince is dead. I, I can't believe David Bowie died. Yeah. All these icons are just dropping away. It's like, well, I guess that's what happens. I know. You know. So, um, University of Miami, what did you study? I studied creative writing. Oh. So, yeah. So you knew. You knew. I, I didn't know at first, but one day I think I was just wandering around the like arts and science building. I hadn't declared a major yet. And in high school, I had been very active in journalism. Uh-huh. And, um, I was like the yearbook editor and I was, you know, always doing, you know, even in college, I was in, on newspaper staff. And so I guess I always thought I'd take a journalism path. But then one day I looked, I saw that they had a creative writing major and I didn't know that that was a thing. Uh, and I just was like, well, why don't I do this then? Yeah. <laughs> and it, and then I thought, well, I'll just minor in journalism and that'll be my fallback, like my practical path. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out not to two be very ex- practical. Two explosive growth industries, I know. journalism and creative writing. Yeah. What did your parents think? Like, didn't they, were they, did they want you to be a doctor or anything like that or no? No, they were never pressuring me into that. My sister became a doctor. She's a pediatrician. Okay. So they got one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I, there was a time when I was little that I did want to be a doctor because of course you say, of course. you know, uh, but then I quickly, my, quickly my daughter wants that. to be a podcaster. It's like, it's oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Actually, she doesn't. Oh, okay. I'm never doing this dad. That's uh, cute. I will not have microphones in my garage. Um, so you, you go through school, you get your, uh, creative writing degree. Did you do an MFA? I didn't know. I, um, so my senior thesis that I had to do, I started in junior year. I, I started writing a manuscript that it was a, a collection of short stories and then it became a novella. And, um, then when I graduated, I started working on a, a new book and I thought this time I'm going to write the novel. And so I wrote a whole other story and that's the story that I got my first agent with and she shopped that book around and it didn't sell. And so like halfway through the process, she told me, she's like, you should really think about writing, you know, working on your next book. And, um, and I was like, so, you know, you're, you're just so, it was a hard thing to hear. I really thought like, no, I have an agent. This is it. Right. Right. Um, so I didn't know. I was like, how am I supposed to just start a whole other book? And, and I was thinking like, I was like trying to think like, what do I want to write about next? And my husband was like, and what it's about- also like, don't, don't say it like it's some easy thing to do. Yeah. Right. Just well, why don't you just write ass. another one? <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize what I had to go through to get this one done? I know. Yeah. Yeah. 
no, it, it, that's kind of what it was. I was like, just so crestfallen. And, and my husband was like, well, what about your th- senior thesis? And I, I told him, I was like, no, that's, there's nothing there. And he's like, no, I think there's something there. And I, I did, I looked at it again and the whole thing, maybe 2000 words and my th- senior thesis ended up surviving through all the processes, but that the senior thesis, I keep slurring that, um, that senior thesis was what evolved into chasing the sun. Yeah. I was gonna, and like, you know, it, I just thought of this like anecdote, uh, about Philip Roth where I think what, you know, when he was working, he would work every day, eight hours a day. And I think he was like a seven day a week writer. Mm, Maybe wow. not, he treated it like a normal like day job. You clock in, you clock out mm-hmm. and he would finish a book send the manuscript off or whatever to his agent or his publisher. The next day he would get up and he would just start again hmm. and he would write, he would, he said on average, he would like, like, like four or 500 pages wow. in that immediate push afterwards. And from that four or 500 pages, his next book would be born, but it would be born from like two or three or four or five or six or seven pages yeah. out of those four or 500. That was his failure. Yeah. So it's amazing. like worth remembering that if you're out there. Yeah. And like he was considered the great, you know, great American novelist or wow. whatever. He was on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah. Remember that? So wow. um, I try to remind myself of things like that. It's true. You have to write so much just to get to like this one sentence that's worth keeping. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you're like, this was a very productive day. We're <laughs> very productive three months. So uh, did you, did you ever consider quitting? Like, were you ever like, you know what? I'm going to go be a journalist or I'm going to go back and Try no. to become a doctor. Like you no. never considered giving it up. No, because well, so I when I graduated from UM, I got a job at a magazine, and I think I was very lucky in that sense. It was like this new magazine on South Beach. It was like a luxury lifestyle magazine, very glamorous. What's it sounding. called? Well, it was called because it's no longer existing. Oh, it's defunct. At the time, okay, so this it was called Ampersand, and it was misspelled purposely. Like instead of saying Ampersand, it was spelled A N D instead of A M P, okay. which was really bad because once I had it on my resume, people thought I had misspelled it. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, after the, it folded, and I was like, after it folded, and I was looking for other jobs, I was like, man, we really shouldn't have used this as the name for the magazine. I was like, try putting other PPL on your oh. resume. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, looks like it looks like a nonsense word. No. Everyone knows what PPL means. Everyone who's like younger than that's a true. Age. Yeah, that's yeah. like yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I worked there for a little bit. It was like six months, and then it folded. And then I realized that I hadn't touched fiction in that whole time that I've been working at this magazine. And the plan had always been, you know, journalism will be the day job, and I'll write fiction. And so it was just. I think I got very lucky in that I realized very early on, like I was like 22 and I thought, no, this isn't the path I want to be on. And so I kind of recalibrated and decided to freelance full time in order to try to, um, to enable the fiction writing just by having control of my time. Um, and at the time too, like I just got engaged. And so my, like my, my now husband and I, we moved in together. And so like, there's less financial responsibility. Right. And I worked part time at my by that time, my dad and my mom had their own practice. And so I would do the billing for them because my mom had taught me in high school to do the billing for their office. Oh. Um, because that way they could go out of town and oh, <laughs> go right. on vacation. And, I, and they, you know, and then a do- another doctor would fill in for my dad. And then sure. I would make sure that the claims were getting sent to the insurance companies and right, everything. Right. So I'd been doing that since high school. Um, and when I quit the, well, not when I quit the magazine job, but when the magazine folded, um, I told my parents, I was like, I want to freelance full time and it's going to be kind of tough. And they said, well, if you want to be billing too, that could help. And so that's what I I did at first. And that I did that for like two years. 
Um, and then my husband and I, we got married. He decided he wanted to go back to school full time to pursue animation and visual effects because he had been a film person. And so we moved to Texas for him because he found a school there that he really liked. And then at that point, it became like, oh, wow, I really need to make this freelancing thing work because I was no longer going to be doing the billing. Right. Um, Freelancing, because you know, I've done that. Like some months you're killing it. And yeah. You think you're like, I got this. And then the next month is like, you know, uh-oh. Yeah. So it's a, it can be kind of a wild ride. You got to really work at it. It is. Yeah. And that was what was really tough because I, I didn't know if it would work out. Right. And I gave myself like six months. I said, okay, if I can't make this work out in six months and I can't figure out a way to support us, you know, in a kind of stable way, then I'll, I'll look for maybe another magazine job or, or whatever. I didn't even know at the time. And then it, it just, it ended up working out. I mean, it wasn't easy by any, by any means, but I ended up transitioning more to copywriting mm. because so now I like my day job is doing that. Like I write copy for, um, for like businesses creative and agencies, mostly with agencies. Yeah. yeah. I work a lot with agencies. Cool. So yeah. And but that you got to have control of your time. Nine yeah. to five jobs. It's really hard, it's hard to get regular work done. Uh, yeah. it takes a lot of your energy and at least if you can manage your schedule, you can usually carve out like your a pocket of time where you can right. have your best energy. Yeah. To put into your book. And then you give, you give the, the copywriting, like, you know, the caffeinated hours or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it turns out, it's, it turns out to still be very nine to five because that's when my clients are around and available and, right. um, and I have to be available for them. But yeah, like I, my process, I've found changes from book to book and with chasing the sun, it was very much like early mornings and before anyone was really awake, that's when I would write, um, with everyone knows you go home. I, it was all over the place. Like some days I would actually find time after, like I would work until like three and then write until like six or so. And then other times I'd write at night and in the morning and there's really no sense to it, but at least I had that flexibility and I'm very grateful for that because I know it's not something that's easy to come by. So, uh, have you been back to Peru? Do you ever go back? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the last time I was there, it's been a few years actually, but after I turned 12, which was when we were able to go back because, you know, when you're trying to figure out all your paperwork and you, you can't leave the country yeah. you know, until you, you have, you don't want card. to go out and then not be yeah. able to get back in or whatever. Yeah. So after that, we did, we, we went back like every couple of years or so for a while. And then the last time I was back recently was like four years ago. So it has been a while. I need to. To find my way back. You ever go and do like a ayahuasca? You have a shaman? No. <laughs> is that just is that just the gringos that do that? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I was just watching something recently about a guy who goes down to Peru, and I'm obsessed with that journey. But I'm too chicken to take it myself. Mm. Um, yeah. But it seems like there's a market for it. There's like this sort of weird subculture of um, people who are advertising themselves as like you know guides or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a way to make money off tourists. Yeah, I keep hearing about it, but I only hear about it mostly from white people. So. Yeah. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, locals have nothing to do with these people yeah. in the jungle. Um, all right. Well, yeah. like when you, when you go down there, do you still have family back there? I do, yeah. Most of my dad's family is still there. Okay. Um, my, my, both of my grandparents. So when we moved to Miami, my, my grandparents on my mom's side eventually also moved to Miami. So really most of my life, it was the majority of my mom's side of the family was in the U.S., um, except for a few cousins. And then all of my dad's family was in Peru. Okay. And they're, they're still there. But in the last few years, um, that's when my grandfather and my grandmother passed away. Uh, and I think 
looking back, that's probably why I haven't been back as soon, you know, because it was usually they were the anchors and that's where we would go. And it's the same thing happened to me. My grandparents died. We don't go to Louisiana the way that we used to. Right. Because they were the, you know, they were the hub. Yeah. Sad. It is. Um, Would you ever live down there? Like, would you ever think like, oh, let's go expatriate and have an adventure and I'll go back to my roots or is that ever like a a thought? You know, I, I, I didn't know that I, it hadn't entered my mind for a while. I will say recently it has, like, I mean, I wondered, you know, just be like a visiting of, professor or something <laughs> like cost of living has got to be pretty good. Like, no, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm not, um, I'm not close to it. I guess I think that because we spent so much of my life moving All right. that for me to, to willingly move again feels very unlike me. It's good to have like, yeah, like yeah. I feel the same way. I moved around a lot and I've been here forever, but it, I, on purpose kind of, I would love, right. I like the idea of like having like a home. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what this is now for me. Cause I mean, it's 20 years. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a long time. Yeah. yeah. It's only, I mean, that's longer than I've lived anywhere. Right. Like twice as long as I've ever lived anywhere. So I guess this is my home. Yeah. I want my kids to have a sense of like place. Yeah. I think that's, and that's something I feel like I was looking for my whole life, just a sense of this place that's a home. Right. And so now that I feel like maybe I'm starting to get it, it, it would take a lot for me to leave it. Time to go to Lima. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you're listening in Peru, I want yeah. you to offer Natalia a job that she can't refuse. <laughs> I have a huge audience in Peru, actually. Yeah. I'm huge. In, Not I'm surprised. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is huge in South America. For sure. Um, so what's next? Like you're doing this, this tour, mm-hmm. you're celebrating the publication yeah. of the new one. Are you, are you allowing for some time to just enjoy this? And then you're going to go back to work on the next one or is that already in process? I've been working on a new book, um, since this one pretty much sold because when I, so when my first book came out, chasing the sun, yeah, when chasing the sun came out, I didn't write for a really long time mm. because it was so like, I was just promoting it and really trying to just enjoy every moment. Um, and it was overwhelming in a good way, but there were like months and months in which I didn't write. And I remember at the time feeling really regretful of that because I felt disconnected from the writing. And so with this one, I was, I, I just made a very conscious decision. I was like, no, I'm going to keep writing through it. And even, and it's not easy to do. There's days where I don't write. I'm not one of those everyday writers at all. Um, but I have in some more or less consistent way kept writing and working on a new story. And I don't know what will become of it. You know, uh, that's the point, right? You just have to figure it out as you go. But, um, but it's been nice. Like I, I'm enjoying writing on planes now that I'm traveling for the okay. book tour. So here's the thing. I like the idea of writing on a plane, but writing is a very private thing to me. I have a hard time writing in public mm. period. And on a plane, I'm always thinking like, is this person next to me oh, re- reading my shit? <laughs> don't be reading my shit while I'm, <laughs> while I'm like struggling through, you know, and I don't think people would do that, but then people are curious. Yeah. You know, I think I might look over and be like, oh, what's he, what's he writing? I totally look over. Yeah. And I look over like everyone, I'm like, what are you reading? I know I'm the worst at that. Like I, I'll even go up to somebody and be like, excuse me. Like I, you know, I work in publishing. Like, can you just tell me what you're reading? I'm curious. <laughs> Most of the time people are fine with it, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like writing is a very uh private activity podcasting hmm. because people are always like do do your show live and i'm like i i like to just be closed off hmm. i feel like uh i mean maybe i'll try it but I, I i was noticing that like that's the way i'm about writing i like to be all alone away from people like what is that yeah 
I'm asking you. Tell oh, me. Oh, right. Yeah. Like I know all these answers. No. <laughs> Why do I need to be like, yeah. in, like hermetically sealed from the world to like have yeah. a, any kind of uh, creative peace? I mean, I guess that's sort of normal, but I like the, the quiet and yeah. I like the solitude, you know? I usually do seek that out. Like, so I write... I think my best hours are early morning and it's, we have like, we have an extra bedroom. So that's our office. And I will get up and go to my desk and I have like, I need to be warm. Like if I'm cold, like I I feel like looking, realizing it now, as you're saying it, it's all part of creating this protective atmosphere. Right. So like I put on like this big sweater, like my, if I put on like these socks, they're like, they go all the way up to my knees because like, I just need to ha- have warmth. I, I saw a picture. I was, re- you know, doing a little research before you came over and I was, I saw like a picture of you online. You were like on your computer, but it looked like you had on one of those, like, is it my snuggie picture? It's a snuggie picture. You had a snuggie <laughs> yes. on. I was like, I was like, wait, is that a snuggie? It's or is totally it, a snuggie. It's a snuggie. Okay. So yeah. I, was like, I was like, wow, this is crazy. She wears a snuggie I when do. she writes. I do. That snuggie was a gift from my brother-in-law for Christmas one year. And I, it was funny cause he, like my, I was hanging out with my husband one day and he got a phone call from his brother and he was like, Hey, what does Nathie want for Christmas? And I was like, I don't know. And then I, and it just suddenly occurred to me. I was like, tell him I want a Snuggie. <laughs> and I heard him on the other line be like, is she serious? And she's not joking. And I was like, no, I totally want a Snuggie. And it's one of those things I'm embarrassed to get for myself. So please get it for me. Yeah, You don't want to be buying that for yourself. That's gotta yeah. be a gift. Maybe the Snuggie people will hear it and then sponsor me. I think if I have, uh, I have uh, some inside knowledge that the CEO of the Snuggie company is a huge fan. <laughs> Um, and so if he's listening or she's listening, <laughs> please contact Natalia directly. Yes. Um, all right. Well, so you got another book going. How many, like how far into it are you? Like uh, early stages? No, I mean, almost done with the rough draft. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's a good, that's kind of good. That's a good space, okay. place to be. Yeah. I'm making progress. A lot of, I mean, I already know how much, like, I already know I'm going to edit most of it, like, and probably rewrite a whole lot of it. Cause what I, I tend to write, like I'll finish a draft before I even go back to edit. Uh-huh. But then halfway through, I'll change like some major thing. So the end of a draft no longer goes with the beginning of a draft. And so then when I start, it kind of helps me actually to, once I start um, revising, it helps me be able to just dive into it because at least I know more or less what I have to do, even though there's actually so much more to do, right? But there's the illusion of, I have this one thing to do. Yeah. But you also have like a sense of a path. Like I, you know, I feel like that when you're just really staring at a blank page, you got to kind of yeah. build the whole thing from scratch. And that's a tall order. But once you get, you know, it's just that first ugly rough draft. Yeah. Done, but still, it's good to get that done because then you it have is. something to work with. That's I, for me, the, the rough draft is the hardest. And I know some people really love to be like, prefer not like not everyone's a reviser. And I will rewrite, revise and just completely restructure. I have no problem tearing a book to shreds once I have a rough draft because at least it's not a blank page. But mm. when it's a blank page, I just, I'm like, oh, it feels very like I get stuck. Yeah. So well, I love to be done with the rough draft. I congratulate you, uh, on the success that you're having. It's Thank really, you. It must be fun. It is. You having a good time? I am. You're enjoying yeah, this? Absolutely. Yeah. You're kind of cruising through California. You're on, <laughs> you're on a national tour because like, you were at uh, AWP. So you were just in Tampa. Yeah. yeah. You've just been working your way across the country. Kind of. Yeah. And then I think next week is I'll be in San Antonio and then New York and then kind of just trying to add other dates as well. Sure. So, and, uh, you said, uh, you were talking about your brother-in-law getting you a Snuggie and you said you referred to yourself as Natty. Oh, right. Yeah. That's my nickname amongst family. Natty or Natty. It's Natty. Natty. So yeah, I, I tend to be kind of, um, 
yeah, because if if you don't, if you don't say it right, it just doesn't sound good. So I'll be like, just call me Natalia. <laughs> but Natalia is a cool name. Thank you. I feel like I like it. As a guy who's named Brad, I am particularly <laughs> sensitive to cool names because my name I don't feel is very cool. Hmm. But Natalia. Natalia Sylvester is a good author name. Thank you. It's solid. It's phonetically awesome. solid. I'm I, glad. I approve. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, listen, uh, appreciate you making time to come over here. Best of luck on the new book. And uh, one more time, congrats on, on the Thank new one. Thank you. It was really great to be here. Thanks. All right, folks, that is Natalia Sylvester. Her novel is called Everyone Knows You Go Home. It's out there now from Little A Books. She's got another one out, too, called Chasing the Sun, her debut. So, Natalia Sylvester, you can find her on the web at nataliasylvester.com. She's got an Instagram. She's got a Facebook. Her Twitter handle is at Natalia Silv, S-Y-L-V as in Victor. Uh, thanks to, thanks to uh, Cigarette Royalty for the transitional interstitial music. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. You can email me, letters at otherppl.com. If you want, if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. Don't wear uh, wearable speakers. Don't you know impose your musical choices on people at volumes that are uh, you know intolerable some respect your fellow citizens if you see somebody walking a puppy read their body language I'm not crazy you don't have a right to the puppy you don't have a right to the uh, airwaves this is intolerable I've been oppressed I'm speaking out for justice I'm looking at Twiggy right now. She's got a slight underbite. People don't know that about her. I'm revealing it here for the first time. She just ran over to bark at our neighbors on the other side of the uh, hedge. Uh, how do dogs bark at the same thing over and over again? Like they, like they never learn. It's always exciting and dangerous. Every single time. I have a, uh, I'm sort of addicted to these things called icebreakers, these mints that you get at like the checkout line at the grocery store. You hear that? They come in like the circular plastic uh, container. I almost always have them. It's an old trick for uh, broadcasters to use a mint uh, before speaking into a microphone. Did you know that? Or people who are like giving public speeches and so on. I want to say politicians do that. It's what I do. Tricks of the trade. I'm a true professional. I use everything I possibly can to deliver the best possible product to my listeners. If that means I take a breath mint, I take a breath mint. Whatever you do, well, actually you can. You know what you should do? Get a wearable speaker and play this podcast. Stream it on Spotify. Turn up the volume. I don't care if you're on the subway. You're out in the middle of the forest. You see somebody coming. Make them listen to me. Enforce my voice upon the general public. Give them no option. Make them listen. Bring literary culture back to the forefront. That's how it gets done. That's the revolution we're trying to create. When is this song going to end? I just I talk until the end of the song, 
that's how I know when the show's over. I rely on external stimuli in order to uh, figure these things out. This song is dragging on interminably. I have nothing left to say. I'm an empty vessel. Would you like a breath mint? You want some? They're really good. They're probably killing me. I don't even know what's in them. It's probably poison. Don't wear external speakers. (laughs) 